And we're live. What's up, guys? John Sintas here, Cast Crytlow, Cutter Nation podcast number 75. We got the streak continuing, especially as we got delayed over here in California. We don't exactly know when we're opening up or anything, but that means we get to bring more content to you guys. And today we have an awesome, awesome guest. But first, please don't forget to please rate, review, and subscribe. It really helps us uh, in the YouTube algorithm as well as through our podcast app. And anything that you can do to help us, whether you share our content on social media or you just tell a buddy, send it directly, whatever you can. Finally, if you want to support us a little bit more, you can get one of our hats off the website. We've got about six different styles. You can go on there and check that out. That's it. I'm had enough. Cass has done an amazing job establishing this relationship with Randy Sullivan from the bull, um, from the Florida baseball ranch. Um, so without further ado, Randy, thanks for coming on the show. I know you're, you're super My busy pleasure. guy. Thank you. Thank you. This is going to be fun. I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, definitely. Cast, um, why don't you catch us up? I know that we've been talking to our community over here in San Diego um, about Randy a lot um, and been sending a lot of his resources over to our players. Um, why don't you catch everybody up on, on where we're at and where we want to, what we want to talk about today? Well, so I met Randy through Kyle Wagner, um, who's going to be on tomorrow with his right. brother and his kid and oh his my. nephew. So it's going to oh. be Cole, Luke, Brett, and Kyle on the show. Um, so that's going to be a lot of fun. I don't even know that John knows that. I just set I that up not. behind that was, the scenes. So That was a bonus. Um, Anyway, Randy, it's probably easier if you just tell people, let's assume that nobody knows who the heck you are. Um, give them kind of the 30,000-foot view of who the heck Randy Sullivan is. Okay, so um, I'm a physical therapist. Um, I'm, a, uh, I'm a baseball instructor. I, I'm the CEO of the Florida Baseball Right. So here's my story. I, um, I, was, uh, I was never a pitcher. I was a catcher in college. I, I graduated from the Citadel, the military college of South Carolina, um, the only uh, – military college to ever make it to division one college world series in 1990 four years after i left they had to get rid of some guys like me um my coach told me while i was there that i led the southern conference in insignificant hits that's what he that was my big claim to fame um <laughs> i don't know what that meant but you know um so i i have an insignificant hits leader like t-shirt that i wear for alumni games and stuff like that so um so yeah, I, I you know I, I was fortunate to be an academic all American there, and um, I was there not on a baseball scholarship. I transferred there from a, an NAI school, and um, I found out just the other day that I'm only one of two guys to ever transfer into the military college of South Carolina to play baseball. Me and the guy that I just recommended last year, Kyle Barker. Uh, yeah, Kyle Barker's son Will. Um, <laughs> nobody transfers in, everybody transfers out, but people I've never done anything you know that way. So I went there and I got an Air Force ROTC scholarship to pay for it. And I ended up, after I graduated, I went out to the wild, wild west and stationed in Cheyenne, Wyoming, where I was a nuclear missile launch officer. My job was to maintain and be prepared to launch your, your nation's nuclear weapons arsenal, which when you consider the 22-year-old me, that's a frightening thought, right? Because there's, like, I was in charge of that, okay? <laughs> And so, idea was that? Right? I don't know. It's a bad idea. Yeah. Um, I went, they paid for school. I was like, yeah, I'll do that. Whatever. Okay. Um, so, yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a key. It's not a button. It's a key. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I, uh, I, while I was there, I found out about this program where they send one person from the Air Force to the Army's physical therapy school. And so I applied for that and I got that. And um, I graduated from physical therapy school at the Army Baylor program. And they stationed me in Tampa, Florida at McNeil Air Force Base. And I was 
I worked there for three years and my kids were getting to be school age, starting to get involved in Little League. And I thought, you know, I was an Air Force brat myself. I was a military brat. I, I went to a different school every year until the 10th grade when my father passed away. And, and I thought, I don't want my kids to have to go through that. So we, I got out. I started a private practice in Brandon, Florida, right outside of Tampa. Started coaching Little League with my sons and it kind of spiraled into, uh, you know, he was the prototypical 79 mile an hour lefty who couldn't get a scholarship because he didn't throw hard enough. And, you know, I asked every single, every single baseball person I knew. I, I didn't even know it was a thing to throw hard. I just thought you're supposed to win games, and get outs, you know. And I always told him that. I said, don't worry about, you know, throwing hard. You're a little guy, you know, just get, you know, win games, get outs. You know, coaches will want you to be on their team and chicks will dig you. And neither one was true. Um, and so, <laughs> so we went, here's, this is a true story. I, I couldn't figure out why he was on, he was on a top five nasty ranked travel team and they, you know, he was their Sunday championship guy and he would 75, you know, 75 pitch complete game all the time. And, and it was like just sitting in the rocking chair and watching him do his thing. And, um, but no one would offer him a scholarship. And I thought, what's going on? So I noticed that the perfect game tournaments that, that they all traveled in herds, all the scouts, right? All the recruiters, like in groups and they all dressed the same, right? They had, they had their logo shirt. They had their hat with their sunglasses backwards. And back then cargo shorts were huge. So, you know, you can't argue with cargo shorts, right? The utility of all those pockets, you know, I, I would lose things in my pocket. So I put my cargo shorts on my coaching shoes and I, and I, and I just nestled in among them. He was getting ready to pitch in a championship game or in a semifinal or something. And, and I just kind of nestled in. I go, okay, let's see what they got to say. I noticed they all had like bags on. I didn't know what was in the bag. I didn't know what a radar gun was. It was just, I had books. I thought they were just having books and they brought out their radar gun. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I, did, I didn't have one. I just pretended. Um, so, and then he threw his, you know, first inning, three up, three down, like he always did. And then he, they put the radar guns up and one guy was walking away and he said to me, he said, you know, this kid's pretty good. He just doesn't do hard enough to compete at our level. I'm like, wow, I didn't, I didn't know that was a thing. I thought you're just supposed to win the game. And so I talked to him after it was over and I said, we got to figure this out. So, you know, I asked everybody. What year you is keep this, by the way? He graduated in high school in, let's see, 2009. Okay, so 2007, maybe eight. Yep. Okay. Yep. And um, and uh, he, he said, I want to play Division One college baseball. I'm like, I don't, you know, I guess we got to throw harder, you know. Um, and so I, everybody asked, how do you do that? They're like, you can't. It's a gift. I'm like, come on, man. It's a movement, right? I'm a physical therapist. I teach movement every day, right? Like if 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 I can teach a per person that just had a stroke, you know, and just walking around with half a brain and they can, I can teach them to walk. I might be able to teach my kid how to throw a little harder. You know, maybe I can't make it elite, but I can help him. So we just started doing a lot of research and the, the journey took us to Texas baseball ranch where I met Ron Wolforth, still a dear friend of mine, still a great relationship. And he was the first guy that ever said, yeah, we, we can teach that. We know how to do that. And so we started working, going down that path. And, you know, by the time he showed up at his first, uh, university the only offer he got at division two school he had gone from like 79 to 81 his last game of his senior year in high school that summer he had showed up though in 87 eventually transferred to uh junior college and then went to a, another d1 and touched 93 after two years and so he went from 79 to 93 and i thought this is pretty cool this stuff so what happened is in being in the baseball community i was coaching travel and everything all the baseball players in our area that got hurt they heard that I was a physical therapist and a coach. And so they all kind of gravitated to our facility. And my practice was pretty much overrun with baseball players who were injured. 
And I soon realized that, you know what? These same things that we're using to teach my son to throw harder are the same things that we keep these other guys safe and healthy. You know, it's like arm health, command, velocity. It's all the same. It's all the same stuff, right? It's, a, it's about being an efficient mover. And, um, <clears throat> and so we started working with a bunch of guys that were injured. We initially would meet, you know, I'd carry stuff around the back of my truck and meet them at a little league park and two people turned into three and three people turned into eight and eight turned into 20. And I'm like, I got to open up a place somewhere. So we had just, uh, we had just expanded our physical therapy practice, but we had a lease left on a little tiny space, 900 square feet. It was 15 by 60. And my business partner, Amy, she's been with me. We've been together now for about 23 years. And she goes, what are we going to do with this little place? I go, I, I think that looks like about 60 feet. I think I got an idea. So we put turf in this, you know, this, this strip mall office with eight foot drop ceilings and put, you know, plywood on the walls. And we worked there for a couple of years until we knocked the wall out and we just kept getting bigger and bigger. More and more people came and things started growing. And then Ron and I got together and he said, you know, I was working out there helping him with the camps and stuff. And he said, why don't we form this thing called the Florida baseball ranch? And, you know, you can handle anybody in the consortium that has arm pain, we'll send them to you. And then you can do, you know, performance for anybody that wants to come that way. And so it just kind of evolved. And the truth is, I tell everybody this all the time. Like we were just, I was just a dad trying to help his son, you know, had some ideas that I thought would help others. And, you know, the, the truth is our kids kicked the door down for us. Our players got so good that, that the, the, coaches from colleges and pros, they just started flocking to us because we had kids that were getting better. You know, I think in the last, I mean, we've had now 322 guys learn to throw the ball 90 miles an hour off the mound, you know, in our place that we just, and then incredible. That's incredible. Thank you. Thank you. Well, it's all the kids. They believed it and they were in, in the last three major league drafts, you can't count this one because it hadn't happened and we're not going to have one. But, but uh, um, in the last three drafts, if you count guys that have trained at our facility at least eight times, you know, we have some guys that come once and leave and come twice and leave. But amateurs from our place have signed almost $15 million in signing bonuses in, in the draft in the last three years. Just We've had first rounders, second rounders. We've had, we've had a lot of guys that got really good, millions of dollars in college scholarships. And, and I tell everybody this all the time, it's the players, man. The players believed in the process. They committed to the culture. And they got so good that the world began asking questions. And so that's the, I think the biggest epiphany for us was when I was at coaches boot camp at Texas baseball ranch and, and, um, and Franz Bosch was the keynote speaker there. And he's one of the world's leading motor learning and skill acquisition ec- experts by bio- biomechanics experts. And he gave this talk that blew me away. Like it, it changed my life and it sent me on this long spiral down of self-study to, to learn, you know, what I, th- I thought I knew motor learning. I was a physical, physical therapist, but I had sort of gotten stuck in old 1970s paradigms. And I began to study a lot more about things like dynamic systems theory, ecological design, um, differential learning, constraints-led approach, things like that, that are all really cool terms that just mean, you know, shut up and let the player self-organize, you know? <laughs> and, um, and it, it, just our process continued to evolve. And, and now, you know, imagine the intimidation. I was the second speaker behind Franz Bosch and my talk was on the biomechanics of deceleration. And I was like, boy, I hope I, I hope I get this right. I hope. And so what happened was um, after that conference was over, uh, we were both staying in the same hotel and we went down to the continental breakfast and Trevor Bauer was actually supposed to take Franz to the airport the next day. 
and Trevor being Trevor, didn't show up, right? He just notoriously late. And so I got to sit there and talk for about two or three hours with, you know, one of the world's leading motor learning experts about baseball and how this science of skill acquisition can be applied to baseball. And that evolved into our relationship that we've had over the years. We host our annual skill acquisition summit with the Dutch national program and Franz is, is the leader of that. And then, you know, he's, he asked me to, um, he asked me to edit the English version of his new book that's coming out called Anatomy of Agility. And as I went through it, I was just, again, a whole nother level opened up and I'm like, oh my goodness, we have been close, but not quite there. And so I took the information from that and applied it to what we call our savage strengthening training and our, our savage, it's actually savage training period. We started as a strengthening program, but now it's like a whole movement based system for training guys. And that led to our upcoming Savage Pitching Coaches Certification Course, which is May 8th and 9th, Friday and Saturday. And we're just going to open the vault and show everybody everything we do. And here's here's how the Florida Baseball Ranch runs the process. And and it's going to include all the new information that I got, you know, from Franz. And, you know, he sent us his endorsement and actually did a little promo for me. And so um, it's been really neat to, to just get ignited about new information and new ways to help people and if, if I was thinking, I was thinking this morning, I was like, you know, when I first started coaching, I was Tommy Mansky, right? I was like, I had a drill called ready, flex, throw, right? Our guys would all line up and they would go ready, flex, and they'd all throw at the same time. And it was really militaristic and organized and it looked really cool. And our travel team was pretty good, you know? And then we went down to Miami and we played against these little nine, 10 year olds that could make throws on the run and throw underneath. I was like, and they killed us. I'm like, our guys can't do that. They can only throw one way, the way we taught them. And and uh, so we kind of changed that. That sort of started us down the path. I mean, we got to build some athleticism, here, you know. And uh, so I did that for a long time. And that's sort of the the thirty thousand foot view of, of who we are and where we are. And we're stoked, man. We're stoked to be here with you guys. You guys are doing some great stuff. I've talked to Cass on several occasions about what you guys got going on over there. I'm really excited to hear all the great stuff you guys are doing too. Yeah, thank you, Randy. Um, I just right off what you were just saying. I just had a kid the other day who's a pitcher, uh, a young pitcher, and um, I I'm like, we, we need to do some ground balls, and we need to go submarine, and we need to go sidearm, and we're doing this for ten minutes, and he was really struggling, and he's like, why am I doing this? I have to. I'm a pitcher. Like this makes no sense to me, and and it's funny how it makes all the sense in the world for him to be able to do that. You know, um, I was, I, I asked another younger player, uh, to try to go from 12 o'clock to, um, one to three o'clock on the ball. And all of them sat at one you know, and just these little things you talk about, let the body self organize, you know, those are some of the things where I'm like, Oh, that's interesting that you can't solve that task. Um, right. so the only thing I'll say is, I, I've heard, you know, like like Randy's mentioned, we've had some conversations and I feel like they're a little bit more on the coaching level, um, pretty like intense. You and Tyler Yerby sitting next to each other is uh, there's a lot of dude. things yeah. coming at you fast. Um, so I, I had suggested us maybe having a conversation at least at the beginning right now of maybe more towards the eight to 12 year old range, um, more it. towards those parents, because, you know, that's where really I think over coaching uh, is is at its worst because th they just can't fend for themselves like a, a an older player would. So, yeah, yeah what do you think? You know, I, I'm kind of an expert in in what not to do there because I coached that level for a long time. Like I yeah. actually, with my youngest son who's a catcher at University of South Florida now, I I coached a travel ball team that we started. Okay, I was this little league dad. I was in little league for like 
10 years I was on the board with my two older sons. And then when the little guy came through, he was kind of pretty good, you know, and I saw they had some friends that were pretty good and I wanted them to move them up in levels and they wouldn't. So I'm like, all right, so here's what I did. I said, Hey guys, I'm not going to coach this year. I'm going to go, uh, I'm just going to watch. And so I went to the seven year old tryout, the seven U tryout. Right. And, and all the good players, I said, can you tell me where your mom and dad are? And I gave them my card and said, I'm starting a travel team. And I was kind of not really, they weren't fond of me around here because kind of took all the players out of the league and it was bad. So, but we coached these same little kids from age seven until they were uh, 13 and they actually won the AAU national championship and we got to play on MLB network. It was really cool. Um, we had a bunch Crazy. of guys that played in college from that and draft. It was really cool. But all the things that you can screw up, all the things that I would look at myself back then and go, what in the heck are you doing? I had the most structured 20 minute station practices that were so rigid. And so this is how you feel the ground ball. This is how you set your arms to throw. And this is, and you know, because we weren't very adaptable, we, we pitched really well. We, we were great. We had a really good pitching staff. We always caught the ball. We got the outs we needed, but we weren't really athletic and we weren't really adaptable until about nine or 10 when I started having to implement some, some uh, athleticism into the workouts. And the biggest mistake that people make in pitching, I think, with young people, and you alluded to it, is that we look at throwing and pitching as two different things. Like, like somehow pitching is this special form of throwing. Look, you should pitch the same way you throw from center field or shortstop or third base or catcher. And you should be able to pitch a lot of different ways, right? You should, it should be no different. The only difference is you're standing on a hill. But when we get a guy on, uh, on pitch, we go, okay, this is what pitchers are supposed to look like. And have you been watching any of the, um, like the, the, um, the classic games they showing on oh, the yeah. network now? Okay. Have you seen all the guys Oh, here, by the way, here's my COVID holster. Oh, I can spray you. If you're right there. Right there, I got my towel. So, you know, right there. So, oh, right there. Hold up. Right? Okay. So, um, have, like all the pitchers that, that are like momentum, they're, you know, they start, they're getting the sign and they're rocking and they're yeah. using momentum. Uh -huh. and, and then, if in the, in the 19, like even as far, as late as like 1985, 86, I saw guys using momentum and tempo. Mm -hmm. And then this position of pitching coach became a thing, right? And we started putting people in a box, right? Yeah. And it's and it's based on one flawed assumption, the flawed assumption that you can repeat a movement pattern, right? Because we yeah. wanted repeatable mechanics. The assumption was if we want to repeat our mechanics, we have to simplify the movement, right? Because you can't repeat something that's complex. Well, that's not that's not true. You can't repeat anything, okay? you'll never make the same throw twice, right? And so chasing this thing called a repeatable delivery, we put a bunch of kids in, in boxes and we made them take the little tiny sidestep that you see, like, I still can't figure out why, if they're going to let us wind up, why do we just shift our weight and turn? Like, why don't we get going, you know? Um, and you know what? As far as arm health goes for young guys, tempo and momentum are your best friend. They they attenuate force. They 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 reduce stress on your arm if you take advantage of tempo. If you start from scratch... You know, and so, so we get them on them and we put them in these little boxes. And if you remember, like in the nineties and early two thousands, when everybody was the same and it was all the only American kids that could get drafted were giants. They had to be massive humans. Right. And then these Dominicans would come over at, you know, 160 pounds and throwing rockets and moving like, like race car drivers, you know, and, and we didn't connect it. Right. We didn't connect it. I remember funny thing. I was, I sent a text to Ron Wolforth one time because 
back then the Cubans were dominating international baseball, right? They were probably because they were pros and they were older, but, but they were better than everybody. They were hardly losing. And, and so I saw a, an overhead shot of, of a Cuban practice field. And we had sort of reestablished some relationships with them in baseball and our coaches went down there and I saw the entire, I think, I think uh, I, 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 it, it was the whole Cuban team. So I think Aralvis Chapman was in there, right? I think I saw him, but they were doing an overhead shot and they had them all lined up and they had towels in their hand and they were like in the, in this flex position. And so I texted my friend, Ron Wolf. I said, Hey, we finally figured out how to beat the Cubans. We sent our coaches over there. <laughs> so now we'll bring them back to our level. And then we'll have them, right? Um, <laughs> um, so, so for young guys, the biggest thing is let's use momentum and tempo. Let's be athletic. Let's train generalized movement skills, right? Um, and that's what that's what I learned a lot from Franz's new book. When even the things that I was looking at were too specific. See, what we have is a general movement problem, and and the body is only interested in three things. It's not interested at all, young coach Randy and everybody else, young coach, in what the coach has to say. It doesn't care one bit about a verbal cue that you give it. It doesn't care if you tell it, hey, get your elbow up, you're flying open, do this. It, it's only interested in protecting itself from sheer forces that might re result in injury. It's interested in, in minimizing extremes of motion. It hates to be at the end of its available motion. So it doesn't like a lot of separation. It likes some to get to optimal length, right? But it doesn't like to be at the extremes. And it, it likes to save calories and not have to think about what it's doing. The body is designed to survive and thrive, right? And so when it can do that and expend the least amount of energy by avoiding those shear forces and by avoiding extremes of motion and by not having to think so much, it's the natural way to unveil normal human movement. And so... And Franz's new book, he talks a lot, and this is what our certification course is centered around, is instead of looking at like a specific solution to a generalized problem, we need to be looking at more generalized universal movement qualities that can be translated into specificity and allow us to solve the problem. So working on things like like how to lock your pelvis, how to, how to what, what's called a hip lock, how to... How, like, what is the anatomy of, of separation and how much do you need? Working on things like hinging your hips so you rotate around your hip because when you get into a hinge position, it puts your glute, your little glutes, the medius and minimus, at the right length. So, so when you hinge your hips, here's my pelvis, right? You can put them at the right length so they can tilt your pelvis and hold it up and, and defy the, the gravity of the mound. And, and so all those concepts then you can watch a pitcher and go, or, or an athlete, and they can be applied to fielders, to base running, to hitters, to you know outfielders, catchers, and pitchers. And instead of looking at, hey, this guy's mechanical flaw in pitching is this, it's a movement flaw. That if you go, it's a prototypical forest in the trees. Like, a, like we're looking in the trees so hard that we, if we just back up, we'll see, man, the answers are general. The body wants movement solutions that it can use in a lot of different situations. It doesn't want to have to have a specific movement for a specific task. It wants to be able to do, to have movements that can be generally used because if I have generalized movements that I can use anywhere, I don't have to think a lot. I don't have to waste a lot of calories, you know, thinking about how I'm doing it. So I think, I think for young guys, the, the concept of athleticism, right? Um, 
I think if you start there, but what does that mean? Okay. Um, what do you guys, when you think athleticism, what occurs to you? What do you, is it something that, that you can define or something that you just know when you see it? Yeah. I mean, well, like I a, feel like some agility, like athletic, you know what I mean? Like someone athlete, someone who's very like fluid or quick, you know, I don't know. That's just what, well, when I'm, you say that phrase, it comes to me. Yeah. I'm going to be a little bit more like direct on this is just that, like, I think about that's why we run and gun. That's why we do these things that are fast Yeah. because that draws out or reveals their athleticism. So their ability to like solve a problem to me is, is very much about athleticism. I agree. And, and the thing is they use that term. We use that term a lot. And you know, when you see a kid that's athletic, you're like, no, that kid's athletic, but you can't really put your finger on it. Right. And so, Here's, here's our definition of athleticism, okay? Every muscle or group of muscles in the body has a link at which it's the most strong or stable, okay? My biceps is weak when it's, when it's straight and it's really strong when it's in the middle, but if it's too short, it's weak. So here, can you see I've been working out a lot? Can you see that? Yeah. It's been my COVID Kill, biceps. Killing right? it, killing it, Randy. I, You can see that, yeah, yeah, I know. Okay, I'm gonna just hold that for you a little bit, Cass. Just, you got it? Okay, yeah, stop are, looking at it. Are you using right now? You're creeping me. Yeah. <laughs> Cass, Cass, could yeah. you help Randy and show him your bicep, please? Yeah. <laughs> yeah I'm he's right. hiding it, but he's got a little, he's got a little. I, I've seen Cass. I've seen Cass. So look, when it's straight, it's weak. When it's too short, it's weak. In the middle, it's super strong. Well, every muscle in your body has a length at which it's the most stable or strong. And so our job is to help the athlete find that length. And they're all different because everybody's anatomy is different, right? My my humerus is a little bit different than Cass's and yours, and my scap's a different angle. And so there's not one place, there's no joint angle you're going to find. You have to, you have, it has to match the, the athlete's hardware, right? What, what their body, how their body's made. Now, you have to have enough mobility to get into that place, right? If I can't bend my elbow to its strong place, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to produce less output and burn more calories here and be more at risk for injury than I am if I'm in my optimal link. And so universal movement attractors, and I know that term is kind of weird, but universal movement concepts, most of them are based around the body's desire to maintain optimal length of its muscles, right? Muscles work either at optimal length or maximal stretch. You can take advantage of mechanical properties or elastic properties, okay? Now, you have to have enough mobility to get there. You don't have to be a gymnast, but if you can't, bend your ankles enough to get into a hinge for it to get your hips to go, you're going to, you're not going to be athletic. So some kids aren't athletic because they're too stiff to get into positions that optimize their length of their muscles. So if you have that, you have to solve that problem first. You can't bring a motor control solution to a mobility problem. You have to solve the mobility first. Now you're working on them at the same time, but until you get enough motion to get there and more is not better, you just need enough, right? And it's different for everybody. Now, once you're there, then what you have to do is you have to remove muscle slack. So here's another physiology concept. It's ready to produce power control or protection of the joints. They sag off like a hanging rope. And before you can express power, have control of your body or protect your joints, ligaments, tendons, you have to take the slack out of the system. Imagine a car and you're pulling it with a rope. You can't move the car until the rope is tight. The body's like that too. And until you remove the slack, you can't, you can't express power, control your body or protect your joints. So some kids are not athletic because they just don't know how to take up muscle slack. They just, they look 
they look flexible. They're just floppy. They just don't know how to. And, and in an athletic event, in a time compressed event, the best solution for the body to take up muscle slack is with something called an isometric co-contraction, meaning all the muscles around a joint or limb tense up, right? They, so right now, there's slack in my arm. Now, no slack. Optimal length and full tension, okay? Isometrically, I'm not moving it, but I've taken the slack out, okay? So here's, here's an, an athletic kid. A non-athletic kid doesn't know how to take up slack. An athletic kid is like, okay, oh, suppose I'm getting ready to run and I don't co-contract before I go. I just go, that's not powerful. It's not safe. It's not under control. But if I go, that little co-contraction that I did is the essence of athleticism. So an athletic kid, when he hits the run, he's a boop, boop, and he knows how to co-contract quickly to take up the muscle slack so that he can produce power, control his body, and protect his joints and tendons and ligaments from injury. And so our job is to provide our young athletes with the training environment, what we call sensory information, what he sees, what he feels, what he hears, what his proprioception sense, his awareness of his joints and what his vestibular sense tells us, his balance. We have to put him in a situation to encourage him to find that. So how do you do that? Well, when you're moving around, there's three ways to remove muscle slack, okay? Um, one is just pre-tension. You can just tense it up. You can just take the slack up manually, like in your glove side or a hitter will do it. Like you'll just tense it up. Next is called perturbations, perturbations or unpredictable loads. When the body's exposed to unpredictable loads, it reverts to its reflex of co-contraction. Like if you've ever held a squirming baby, you co-contracted, or if you've ever caught a big fish, right? Or if you've ridden a roller coaster, you co-contracted. Power, control, and protection. And so what we do is we put them in an environment, let them explore all different motions in our workouts with, with unpredictable loads. Like we have these water bags, these, these, these aqua tubes that are full and balls that are full, half full of water. And when the water's moving around, you can't predict where it's gonna go. And so you have to co-contract. And so instead of adding heavy weight to the bar, it's not that we never do that. We do that some, but in, there's that, the point of diminishing returns and safety for young guys that instead of using weight, we use unpredictable loads. And that allows them to learn to feel these co-contractions at any point in space where they are. Now they become very adaptable athletic athletes. And the third way is with time pressure. When the body doesn't have time to organize a movement, it reverts to its reflex of co-contraction, right? If I'm, if I'm gonna stand up from this chair, there's no time pressure. I don't have to go. I, I can just stand, right? If I walk up to a trap bar deadlift, I don't care how much it weighs, I can predict it and it's no time pressure, I don't have to co-contract, I can just lift it. But if I'm running, I'm gonna sprain my ankle in the hole, my body senses that and it goes, oh, and it tenses me up. If you've ever been in a car wreck, power, control, and protection. And so our whole training approach is just to expose them to this 360 degree training experience that, that lets them explore finding optimal length and co-contractions to stabilize their bodies, to give them the athleticism that is at the core of everything we do. It's, it's really the essence of what we do at the ranch is developing athleticism in guys who happen to throw the baseball. So, so there's, there's decision-making process is a big thing in this. And mm -hmm. I'm curious because uh, Kyle Wagner just sent me uh, an interview. With, you know, I love Jordan Peterson. It was with Jordan mm -hmm. Peterson and yeah. some other guy. By the way, and thanks for sharing that stuff with me. That was really cool. I, I, I had to stop because I couldn't stop, right? I was like, I got, I got to spend time doing some other stuff because it's really good, right? Really good. He yeah, does man. it to me all um, the time. He does it to yeah, me all the time. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. He's like, have you heard this? I'm like, all right, I'll go listen to it. And I'm like, 
oh, like. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I can't stop listening to this. Yeah, I, is there anything? Okay, so That's I don't. I got. No, I don't, know the guy, I, I don't know the um, guy that he was talking about or talking with, but he suggested that most people assume that the left brain is the, is more correlated to decision making. And this guy was saying that the right brain is more in control. Um, and this is not my realm at all. Um, could you can can you is this is this something that you can even speak on? Uh, right, yeah. brain, right brain, left sure. brain, and how we're uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, I don't get into it much, and here's why. Okay. Um, there, there is probably, I would be arrogant to think there's no cognitive input, right? But in, if in a time press situation, you don't have time to think about how you're making a movement, right? Like we can literally measure the amount of time it takes for an impulse to go from your brain to your muscles and back up to your brain again. And the math doesn't work out. There's not enough time in that like little 1.5 seconds for you to make a throw or to take a swing for any thinking to occur. Thinking will only slow the process down. Now, you might be able to think about the very first move a little bit, right? Because the move is just beginning. But once it starts going, it's physiologically impossible to think your way through a move. It's neurophysiologically impossible. So, well, I'm, so, I'm wondering so, if it's like so, the emotional state, though. Like, I'm not, I'm not talking about the act. I'm curious about what are you like before you go to make the decision, right? So this is the whole mental game of like, hey, I'm in a panic mode or I'm chill. Yeah. Yeah, so I that's think where that, I'm saying we're talking eight to 12 year olds and we're talking about, okay, let's create some athleticism. But if you're creating athleticism and everybody hates you at the same time, their decision-making process is going to be a little bit different. So that's kind of where I was yeah. going with it. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, so, so intention is important. Like the, the body's going to organize itself to accomplish a goal, right? It, accomplishing goals for us is the equivalent of the cheetah eating the slow gazelle it wants to it wants to eat and make babies right it wants to it wants to eat slow gazelles so you can have enough energy to go back home and make babies right with mama cheetah in the cave and save calories and and so our athletes their intention matters now the body will organize itself to, to accomplish a goal and we got we went down that path for a long time but it won't always find the safest or the most efficient way it'll it'll find a way our jobs to kind of guide our athletes toward a more efficient way. And, and so uh, intention and ec excitement or motivation is important. Those are all well-documented in the research that, that they play a big role. But in the moment when we're moving, you, you can start, like you can say, okay, my intention is to, is to throw that ball to the first baseman, right? And that's my goal, right? And so one of the ways that you can impact the way a, a player moves, what we call, what we might call decision-making is to change the goal, right? If I'm hitting and I say, I need you to hit the ball right field, you've changed the goal. I got a different movement, right? If I'm missing arm side high every pitch and I say aim glove side low, I've changed the goal. Changing the goal is one way to influence a movement without using verbal cues. It's, it's a really easy one. Change the goal. Um, but but what we see is that in time compressed situations, the only thing that can impact the way the athlete moves is the sensory information he gathers while he's moving. So what we can do is sort of guide him toward what's important to be focusing his sensory information to get where, where he should be gathering. But as he moves, more information emerges. Like when, when a hitter, I, I don't think a hitter makes a decision. I think a hitter moves. And the better, the more efficiently he moves, the better he perceives the pitch, right? Um, so, so think about this, okay? Um, it's, it's James J. Gibson's theory of direct perception. And this will apply, I'll bring it back to kids here, okay? Um, but 
Gibson was the first one to say, you know what, we really don't interact with our environment by by labeling things and causing we think about them. Like if I walk out into the woods and I see a chair, I don't have any way of knowing that's a chair unless someone labeled that a chair for me, right? But the way the light reflects on it and the way the, the surface is and the texture, it looks like something that's sit onable, right? And I love he, this. I love this one so much. He, he termed he termed that for he made up a word for it. he made up a phrase. He called it affordances. He says that looks okay, a stump in the woods would look sit onable, right? And so it affords me the opportunity to sit on it, right? Um when I go out on the floor here uh, and we are actually open, um, I have a physical therapy table in in part of the building and um I tell my staff, leave this empty. I never know when I'm going to need to put a guy on it. So leave it off. And every time I walk out, there's coffee cups and keys and wallets. And and it's not that they're being disrespectful. It's that that flat surface is put onable. Like it, every flat surface invites me to put stuff on it. That's why every counter in your house is full of stuff. Because If you had slanted counters, no one would put anything on your counters, right? <laughs> it doesn't afford you the opportunity to put on it. It's put onable, right? And so the better I move, the more my perception improves. So if I'm a running back and I'm really athletic and I see a hole, I put my foot in the ground and I'm really agile and athletic. I can cut and get to that hole. I'm affording a smaller hole than the guy who's on that The unathletic guy has to have a bigger hole, but because I'm a better athlete, I move better. I'm afforded much smaller holes because I can get there. Right. And it's the same in hitting. If I'm hitting in a way where I'm moving so the bat is in the back of the hitting zone and it's coming through, and now more pitches present themselves as hittable to me, right? Because my, my movement makes those pitches hittable. The way I hit, I was, you know, I read two books, Charlie Lau and Ted Williams, and I thought Charlie Lau's book was newer. It must be right, okay? So I hit like, you know, on the front foot, right? I, hit, I was like front foot Sally. And when I'm moving linearly, there are pitches down here that I can't, they're unhittable. So the only thing I could ever do to right field was just fillet a ball and get a little, you know, one of my two season doubles down the line that bounce into the bullpen, you know, when those flare, flare, <laughs> because my, because of the way I swung the bat, many pitches presented themselves as unhittable. I was not afforded that pitch. The better I move, the better I perceive. And then as I move, I reveal more sensory information. And so if we teach them to move better, they'll perceive better. And if we teach them to perceive better, they'll move better. There's the cyclical link. And so I'm not really great at teaching a person how to perceive. So I kind of kind of lock in on the on the on the movement side and go, all right, we're gonna link it with stuff that you're supposed to be perceiving. And if I make you move better, you're gonna start perceiving better, right? And then I just present them with sensory information that allows them to explore and find their own way. And so when you say decision-making in time compressed situations, there's really not a decision. Like how does an athlete know when he's driving to the hoop? Okay. I got to, I, I, okay. Michael Jordan, how does he know in, in the documentary there, right? How does he know that he's going to have to fake this dunk and then bring it up with the left hand and bounce it off, kiss it off the glass. He didn't, there was no decision. His body moved and the sensory information he collected, that was what he was afforded. He was like, I'm going to have to do this. He didn't think his way through that, right? So you can't repeat a movement, so you can't think your way through a movement. Do you think, sh you think okay, over 200 studies 
in motor learning research, according to Franz, is what I think I, I might be wrong about the number, okay? But he told me this one day. He said, the best performers in every sport, football, basketball, rugby, tennis, hockey, soccer, you name it, they can perform their skill. They cannot tell you how they do it. That's why they don't always make the best coaches, right? Because you think Steph Curry would be a great shot coach? I don't think Steph Curry knows how he shoots. He's just like, it's over there. I just, I'll put it over there. It's, it's, I, I don't think he has a technique. I think he just, and if you study him a little bit, he learns implicitly, he learns through these subconscious means that we're talking about. Now, left brain, right brain. Um, if you get into Tim Galway's stuff, I don't know if you've ever read any of his stuff. He talks about his inner game of tennis, inner game of golf. Yeah, no, I do have. Yeah, yeah. I, I've said that. And then, no, I love the inner game and, of tennis. And, and, and this is very helpful for young guys, especially because they get chirped on so much by coaches and parents, right? That they got a lot going on in there. There's a lot of thoughts banging around their heads, right? Well, Galway talked about how you have two selves in your brain. You have self one who knows how to do stuff. He's really good at stuff, right? And he's able to do skills, but self two is the guy that's like, hey, you know what? You got to get your elbow. You stay back. And self two thinks he knows everything, but he just talks a lot, right? And so, just like the unruly child in the in the classroom, you got to give self two a job, like make him go clean erasers, right? So give him something to do so he doesn't get in your way. So here's an example: my son coming up, he's a catcher now, but coming up, he was a second baseman shortstop, and he he went to his first you know high school game and. He made like two or three errors. I'm like, he never makes errors. He, he was getting nervous. He was like, dad, I'm having trouble picking hops. I don't know. And so I, I took a page out of Tim Galway's book and I said, okay, in practice and in the games, when they hit your ground ball, every time the ball hits the ground, I want you to say the word out loud, bounce, bounce. Okay. The word bounce. And so the ball would hit the ground. You'd be bounce, 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 catch, throw. He'd say it out loud. And because self two is occupied with the words, of saying bounce, but he didn't say, Hey, you got to move up. You got to move back. You got and all that self-doubt decision-making that comes in. Um, he had another little episode where he was playing third base and he'd never played third, but that foul ball over by the fence was challenging. It was really high. And he's like, man, I don't even know how to judge that. And so he was getting nervous and getting like worried about. And so in that case, I said, okay, if ever you get a pop-up, behind you at third base you're going to go like this you're going to go and it's going to explode right when he hits your hand and you get his self two out of the way and he just learns how to catch fly balls implicitly without thinking about it anymore you got to give that guy a job so that and in the pitcher's world often that job is something like screw your back foot in the ground like feel your butt go you know because you have time to think about that one right and then you get that little decision maker that thinks he knows what he's doing out of the way. And the other guy knows how to perform the skill. It's there funny you that you say that. Cause that's like how I do it <laughs> you know, where, yeah, I'm, where I'm like reach down here and then rip. That's like, you know, lip, rip, ah. and so it's ah. like, I, like you're saying, I, it makes sense that it's occupying that side of my brain and it makes sense right. when I'm, when I am ripping what it feels like. Yeah. It's, it's pretty cool. And, and it look, Every guy's different. You have to build a relationship with your player and know what makes them tick, right? And yeah, and and you know, some guys that, uh, that doesn't work for me, and others it does. So yeah, pretty cool. Well, I think I think people, um, you know, and I've this is probably just because I've seen it and felt it myself. Is you know we do know what athleticism looks like, but then when it comes down to being a volunteer coach at my little league, right? You know, how do I then create athleticism? You know, because it feels like if I say, hey, we're going to go play spike ball. 
let's get four things of spike ball going and that be part of my practice routine once a week or something like yeah. that. You know, I'm going to have parents have no idea, like, what are you doing? Why are you wasting our time here? Um, and so I'm curious, you know, how do you, I, I think about it like this. When you go to ABCA, every mm -hmm. coach is like, I just want you to tell me what to do. Mm -hmm. And what do you tell these guys? Like, what are some simple things that you can do to draw out some athleticism without, you know, using tools that they already have? Yeah. Uh, integrate it into your warmup. Don't waste your time, you know, running out to the fence and kicking your legs side to side and doing this thing and stretch, stretch and do this. Integrate some of the unpredictable loads in your warmup. Um, do dynamic warmups to, to, you know, to create athleticism. Um, unpredictable loads. Look, if you can get an aqua ball for a hundred bucks, you know, to have half full of water, you got, you got a tool. Um, I've seen guys put water into PVC pipes, slosh pipes, sort of hold them over your head. When you get your hands over your head, you have to, activate all the muscles below and co-contract. So, you know, just having elastic bands over your head sometimes when you pull elastic band apart and run with it like this, you, you're having to co-contract the muscles below. Um, so you can do that integrated into your warmups, get rid of the old, you know, passive stretching warmup and just start doing a dynamic warmup where you integrate some of that in. Um, I would say that um, in, in hitting, for example, um, I think that every it's kind of hard to do if you got a one hour practice once a week. Let's face it. Like I was the little league dad. I was a travel ball coach who practiced three or four days a week, and everybody thought, yeah, "Dude, our, our our kids are five six times a week." So you can talk yeah. about what you would do with best case I don't, scenario. Yeah, I don't know how to get them better. I would spend on a two hour practice. I'd spend fifteen minutes. I never did anything for more than fifteen or twenty minutes, right? And so all the team stuff, like first and third defenses and double cuts and bunt defenses. I would choose one of those every practice, like fly ball communication. What are the big five things that are going to be in a game? Uh, first and third defense, bunt defense, uh, double steal, uh, double steal, uh, double relays from the outfield, um, fly ball communication, and what else? Uh, there's one more. I would have, I would have five of those things that I would just put at a 15 minute block and we'd work on it 15 minutes and we're, and we're done. Like, we, and by the end of the year, we worked on it eight or nine times, but not all at once. We don't waste the whole practice doing that. And then I would have, so 15 minutes of warm up, 15 minutes of team defense. And then I would have another 15 or 20 minutes of athleticism. Let's just use unpredictable loads and do athletic things around the field. Then I would work on skills of fielding ground balls. And, and then during our hitting rotations, I would have four different rotations where they're exploring different things, different variability in the rotations. And that's when everybody on my team, my 12 man team, everybody pitched. So we had 15 minutes to go through the pitching area and they either did drills or did their bullpens on that day. And we integrated it in there. You have to stay really well organized, but you can blend that in. And then we'd always finish off with base running. You can run bases with, with bands over your head and you can run bases with, uh, with water bags over your head to create that, instability that forces them to co-contract and be athletic and so um you have to infuse everything with athleticism right and um in hitting using variability means changing the ass change the athlete uh, i'm sorry change the task change the athlete change the environment right the easiest one to change is the task so change the drill like the three plate drill or change the pitch like don't let them know what's coming uh change the uh, location of pitch, change the type of pitch, um, change the bat, use different weight, weights of bats, different lengths of bats, 
um, and change the surface they're standing on, put one foot up on a bucket, you know, put one foot on the ground, um, changing the environment. If you have a cage that has two sets of lights, turn one tray of lights off so it's dim and, and then change the athlete, have them do pistol squats until their leg fatigues and let them hit with a fatigue leg or have them do push-ups until their arms fatigue and let them hit with fatigue arm. And that way they learn to be adaptable. They explore all this stuff. Okay. And then motor learning research tells us that your athlete needs to be succeeding about 70% of the time for the learning effect to occur. And so if you throw into a kid in the cage and he squares up 10 balls in a row, good for him, but it's not a good round. He didn't learn. He, he needed, he needed more variability, more unpredictability. Right. And then if he's only squaring up three out of 10, he's being challenged too much. And so you have to add that unpredictability. It can't be scripted for everybody. It has to be based on the kid. If you have a kid who's, you're only throwing him fastballs, he's only squaring up three out of 10, then you got to keep throwing him fastballs until he gets to about seven out of 10. And then you can start mixing them up and changing the drill, right? Um, if you got a kid who's just crushing everything you got, you got to add a lot more variability to him so that he can be challenged and be more adaptable. I was going to say on the hitting side there, um, I see a lot of coaches uh, just BP is hard. BP is really hard, right? Yeah. To throw a good BP. So yeah. to, to not, you know, to, to not run away from front flips, like get good at front flips, you know, and, and like I've seen, you know, I've seen Kyle Wagner, you know, I brought him up a lot today, but I've seen him do the overhand flips. I've seen a lot of people, you know, create different feelings, um, you know, for them to solve the problem as a coach. You yeah. know, and if you got to stand on a freaking bucket, you know, to, to create a better angle for your front flips to feel good about it, do whatever you have to do and um, get creative with that. I was going to say, because we, you, good, you, uh, it, you, you pitchers, are, you pitchers, John, and Kat, you guys are the worst BP throwers. We hire pitchers to work. I'm like, no shot. This guy can yeah. throw BP. Like, well, I, <laughs> just I, I did it for a living. So I, I was going to say, I do believe I'm the anomaly. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but also, yeah, I don't do the, the we, we actually it's funny that you say that, but we actually talk about the technique of BP throwing all the time. And we see it like, you know, it pops up on TV and it's like, yeah. it's wrong. It's like a frontward facing weird walking wind up thing with an right. upload. And then the arm comes out weird and does look the same. And yeah. like, I can stand flat footed in what we call our lean back drill and throw like mm -hmm. 300 pitches because right. it's like literally, I'm just using the momentum and rotating and just like, mm -hmm. it'd be like spot, 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 spot. Yeah. So, but a lot of the guys that I do that too, because it's such a different look to your point, like they don't like it. They're like, Oh, it's way too hard. It's game. Like I'm like, dude, I'm, I'm actually further. I'm on the edge of the mound and I'm just going through it. And you, you just yeah. don't like, it's a long arm action that's hiding. Cause it's actually coming from behind my head yeah. instead of here's the ball hit it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, and dad's and dad's not doing lean backs, throwing 300 pitches to kids. <laughs> no, so. It's true. So front no. flip and get good at it. That's true. And, and if you're a dad and you can't throw BP, give yourself to a job. Give your, you're yipping yourself up. That's what you're doing. Give yourself to a job, right? My dad used I, to absolutely light me up. Like he yeah. used to cutter, sinker, change, slider. Like, and I crushed in high school. And I didn't realize the value of it till way later. But like, yeah. he, he'd just go out and we'd start off with like fastballs only. And then he'd go, all right, game on. And then just right. start mixing. And I would be like, miss, miss, foul, flare, you know? Yeah. And to to a good a good hitter who moves well, like if your swing is good, you need to see that, right? But if you're starting out and you're new and you don't know how to hit at all, there's no point in that, right? There's no point in challenging a guy who's already overwhelmed, right? And so you have to you have to modulate that, right? And so you were a great hitter, you moved well, so your dad carved you up. I 
Like right now, my son has seen me so much throw batting practice that there's nothing I can do to get him not square the ball up. There's nothing I can do. Unless here's what here's what's funny though. Like if I change my mind in mid pitch, like I was gonna throw a fastball and they go, oh, I'm gonna curve it. And like and he doesn't get that cue from me, that 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 sort of that that perceptual thing that he gets, whatever it is, he he it screws him up a little bit. But I, I can't do that all the time. Sometimes it's an accident. And then I do have, since you guys are cutter nation, I do have like um like I have this like bone chip cutter. I got that term from Mike Bardo, but Mike Bard. Um like it feels like every once in a while, like a like a sh ice pick goes in your shoulder and you cut the ball really hard, you know, <laughs> it goes that way. I have that. And so some days, like the other day I was throwing and I literally was trying to hit my son in the center of the back as hard as I could and the ball was going right over the plate. <laughs> so I'm, throwing, I'm like, I hope I don't, I don't want to accomplish my goal here. Because, you know, oh, yeah. and, and that's why you need a pitch logic ball so you can you see go. your spin efficiency. <laughs> Which, by right. the way, I don't know if you've played around with that, but this concept and idea is unreal to me, especially since I know you're a little bit into the tech world with stuff. With yeah. it. But yeah. the ability to track spin efficiency inside your drills is why we love this thing, right? Really and, cool. That's a and, great and, and yeah, I mean, we it auto tracks. It's really cool. We'll, we'll get into that and, a little bit later. And, and, and affordable. Like, it doesn't cost you normally. Like, yeah, you know, right? It's cool. it's we, we have a lot of people asking me about it. And, and the funny yeah. thing is right now, it seems to be the stigma that, that people don't, quite believe in the velocity of what it is and it's funny because i'm like so you're mad that it's faster like in right. what world are you not a pitcher right now that like right what pitcher wouldn't want a number that was faster than the yeah. other thing right like it's okay and as long as it's consistent it doesn't matter exactly it, it, exactly that's what i said too. Yeah. yeah yeah i was like you mean it's faster every time on all of your stuff doesn't that mean that it has a little bit of validity to it you know so we're so we're apples to apples every day right yeah okay. exactly yeah, i like that that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> What's cool yeah. too is is um, the tech that's in the ball. It's the final tech, right? They finally have the processing of speed. They won't they won't need to upgrade this anymore. It's going to be all firmware app updates from here on out. Cool. So cool. really exciting with that. And then I know you're a long toss guy too, but um, this will be able to do distance soon. Whenever they like release that. it, and that and I, like I really that. like that too. So you could, you know, I I want to say um, you and I talked about it before about the the um, throwing programs for returning to throw um, yeah. and how the the distance wasn't didn't make sense because I remember messaging you way back and just asking a general question about it and being like this thing's telling me to crow hop at forty five feet and I'm either spiking it or absolutely sending it to the moon because I don't understand, you know, and, and this is way before, this is pre-movement and everything we all feel where I'm thinking crow hops, like right foot first, like I'm coming up from the outfield. I'm like, I don't know how to do this at low right. effort, you know? Yeah. How do you so crow really hop 50%? Me... How do you do that? Is that, how do you even, it looks like, yeah. okay. So, so it comes out with how many guys do you see like come out of an injury with that, that, nine, 10 month protocol, right? 28 weeks. And they got the yips when they come out of it. Right. Yeah. Because they're caught between having time and not having time because I've made so many low effort throws in a low intensity throw. You have time to think about it. Mm -hmm. And so in a high intensity throw, you don't have time to think. And so now you're out, you're in between when you come out of it. And now you got this. Remember if the only thing that can make you move is sensory information, right? Then when a guy has quote unquote, the yips, he's getting bad sensory information. And it's probably the way he's moving that's, that's yielding this sense, bad sensory information. And so we've had a lot of success just saying the yips isn't a thing, man. It's just not a thing. It's just you just threw so many corrupted rehab throws. And so we've actually changed our rehab protocol. Instead of 
instead of limiting stress through lower intensity, we limit it by reducing degrees of freedom. And what that means is like, yeah. I'll, I'll put my right foot in front so I can't screw up the lower half and then I'll be able to throw at moderate intensity and still limit stress because I don't have my lower half involved. Okay. Um, and, and so, and I got that idea from Franz. He said, and, you know, throw two, two handed throws to the ground, like as part of the rehab instead and throw with two hands instead of one limit the degrees of freedom instead of limit the intensity. And so our director of play development, Wes McGuire, he came up with this and I think it's brilliant. Okay. Our, our guiding, our guiding force in our rehab throws, and we have a return to throwing protocol you know, that we've modified is don't make it weird and don't make it hurt. Okay. It's really that simple. So as hard as you want, don't make it weird. Don't make it hurt. Okay. And, and they, and they do pretty good. yeah, just don't make it weird. Don't make it hurt. And it's because there's so many things that we've done to these rehab protocols that are just, they make no sense. And what, to your point about long toss, and I love the idea of being able to track spin efficiency on long toss too. That'd be awesome. Cause how yeah. many guys you see send it out there and it starts cutting and, yeah. and um, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, you just biomechanically they change sometimes when they go long. And that's one of the problems is that it gets too far off. Look, the knock against long toss is that it adds stress to the tissue and every throw is a little different. Okay. The value of long toss is that it adds stress and every throw is a little different. <laughs> it's, it's the truth and paradox that the Wagners will talk about tomorrow. It's, it's, it, you have to add stress to tissue. If you don't, you get, fragile tissue and you need variability because it needs to be able to make the subtle adjustments subconsciously because it, it doesn't have time to make adjustments mentally. It, it has to do it subconsciously. And so when you long toss, since every throw is a little different, you get to practice making the adjustments and same with weighted ball training. Now here's where I'm in weighted ball training is like we, we want variability because we want to be able to adjust the movement on the fly. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I don't think there's any harm in, in, in vacillating between four and six ounces, you know, because I know when I was growing up, every ball I had was a weighted ball because we only had two of them. They had electrical tape or if you've ever played a 9 a.m. perfect game in a dew in Florida, you, you by the second inning, you were throwing a weighted ball, right? Yeah, 100%. Um, I, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm, so, I'm so glad you said that exact, like, thing because yeah. that was my point. I was like – I remember – um, somebody throwing, they're like their velos down. I'm like, it's a 9 a.m. game. That ball just got hit to left field. Did you see the rooster tail on the end of it? Like exactly. they did, and they did. He didn't even change the ball. He just right. rubbed it up. Like he should have changed the ball. Like, yeah, he's down like, you know, three to four miles an hour. Like, what do you th you think it's adrenaline? I'm like, well, um, I think that he's throwing a seven ounce baseball, and I think that it's nine in the morning, and he doesn't yeah. train like or play at nine in the morning. You know, yeah, yeah. So I'm and, not quite yeah. exactly sure you know, what his issue is, you know? And, and the guy with the radar gun is about 20 degrees off too. So it's like, you know, it's not right behind. There's all kinds of, oh, you know, I'm so up. glad you said that. Um, since working with the pitch logic guys too, one thing that, w that I've learned is like how radar guns work and how it's estimations exactly. of, um, yeah. of numbers. Right. And there's even like right. reverse calculations going on on some of the radar guns too. And, and even some of the uh, systems. And yeah. so it's interesting how, you know, um, how all that stuff works. Um, yeah, I think we stalker, just... I think, I think the stalker manual talks about like every five degree, every, every five degrees is two miles an hour. Like that you'll lose if you just get off to the side a little more. Um, yeah. And yeah. So, but yeah, we were talking about uh, long toss being 
the value of it is that it add, the knock is that it adds stress and it and that every throw is a little different, and the value of it is that it adds stress and every throw is a little different. Okay, um, and then with weighted ball training, for young guys, a lot of people are really scared of that, and I and I'm okay with that. Like we really don't implement weighted ball training until our guy's physiologically developed and his movement pattern is sound. And then we use it because look, the studies are pretty clear right now that you're not really gaining a lot of velocity from a weighted ball program, right? Not long-term sustainable velocity, but it's a great way to add variability to a highly specific task. And so you have, you can't, instead of repeating your movement, you have to be a guy who's trying to, uh, to adjust your movement and you have to do it on the fly. And there's no time to think about it. So the heavier ball simulates when you're behind your timing, the lighter ball simulates when you're ahead in your timing and you get to practice all the adjustments in between. But to people that are kind of like, that kind of, kind of get a little, uh, a little yippy about weighted ball training for kids. I, I get it. Like, like we might go up to a six or seven ounce and then down to a four. And like, we're talking about, like if you've ever played a 9 a.m. perfect game tournament, you had a seven ounce ball by the second inning on when the ball got back to you, you know, and in Florida with a dew with a rooster tail coming up. I don't know, you know, I don't know how it is in, in Cali there, but it's out here. There's a lot of humidity. Okay. <laughs> and it gets really wet. So, um, it's so, not very, it's not very nice out here at all, Randy. You yeah, don't need to come no, to California. No, no, yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so I think that if you're worried about adding weighted ball training to a young guy, then there are lots of other ways to add variability without, without using weighted ball. You can, you can do you can just do running throws and do sidearm throws and do run right throw left run left throw right throw off different surfaces. You don't have to have a weighted ball to add that variability. You can add it through the other change the task a, a little bit differently. And so if if someone's a, like worried about should I or should I not? Here's look if the guy is shaving and driving to dates and got an Adam's apple, he's pretty well into puberty. He's probably pretty good, right? If he has no Adam's apple and he and he can't you know go on a date and he's not driving, then he may not be ready. And if he's not, if you, if you're not sure he is, then use another way to add variability until you're confident because it is a lot of different ways to do it. So you don't have to get, it doesn't have to be this big polarizing thing. Like if I don't do weighted balls, I, I get, I don't know about you guys. We get this a lot. Like, like in the beginning, we're trying to change a movement pattern. And, and the first thing they ask me is, well, when do I long toss? I go, well, you're not going to long toss until we get down the path a little bit. And then we're going to add it because we need a little more stress, a little more variability. But the long toss doesn't fix your movement pattern. You, you know, I'm not going to add stress to a bad movement pattern, right? Um, and then people say this, well, when do I get to start weighted balls? How about this? The guy's gaining every week. He's like adding velo every week. But when do I start? Why, why, would you, why would you do that? Like, you might go backwards. You might, you, you might lose velo. You're doing good. Keep it going. And when a really good time, like if a guy's trying to gain velocity, that we would add weighted ball training would be, like he's just plateaued for like a month and he hasn't made any gains at all. And he's kind of stuck in his groove. It's a way to add a little chaos and variability to get him to shake himself out of that system and get to a new groove to find a, a better level. But I think that um, if we don't have to, we don't. And then eventually we might need to add a little variability just because we're trying to get the arm to make subtle adjustments quicker. So. Yeah. And it seems like with younger players, it can be so con I mean, I, I'm confused by how would I run a, how would I run the perfect little league practice? I'm dead serious. Cause there's so many different ways yeah. that we can handle it. So I think it's just like, stay within what, what your mindset is, but then like mix it up and make it fun. And yeah. it has to be fun. all. 
Yeah, the biggest thing is time, right? Like, um, he's fro he, that's a good look. You look good, frozen. Like <laughs> he is frozen. Yeah. That's hilarious. He is frozen. Yeah. Um. Uh. So anyway, um. Yeah, the one way to keep it from getting boring is a lot of enthusiasm. I was a big cheerleader, you know. I was a big yeah, let's go, like myelinating, high fiving guys every time they did something good, you know. Mm -hmm. And and also just at, when you organize your practice, man, fifteen minutes and move on, like. Like, yeah, don't do anything more than if you don't have it in 15 minutes, you're not getting it today, coach. Let's do something else. And so in a two, we, we practice for about two, two and a half hours. And I would schedule those 15 minute windows where you had the one team defense. You had the, you had, you had the dynamic warm up. You had one team. We had fundamental skills like ground balls and fly balls. And um, then we'd work on one team skill and then we'd work on uh, base running was always a part of that. Um, and we just, rotate around to different ideas on what we do and in 15 minute segments, you know, like, and then when we hit, we would hit, we would have a one hour hitting that was three hitting stations and a pitching station. And that's three guys to a station, right. And 12 man team mostly. And then uh, they would want, they would want, but the, the downside was that as the head coach, I was always in the bullpen with the pitchers. And uh, so I didn't work with the hitters a lot, but you got to have some, you got to be able to delegate and have tasks assigned that you want people to accomplish, you know, and um and you got to all the whole coaching staff has to be speaking the same language on the same page, which means you got to work together before you start. And you know I always had my written plan, and as soon as we got there, I get I gave every coach an index card with our plan on it that day. One thing I hate about like youth practices is the coaches all stand around. We haven't seen each other, and everybody's hey, what's going on? We start you know during the warm up, we're just kind of glad handing each other and. What do you want to work on today? You got to know, man. I mean, it's like if you've ever been in a business situation, you go to a meeting and you're like, who called this meeting? And no one knows what the meeting's about. It's like we don't need to spend that time greeting each other. And I kind of explained to the coaches that coach with me that, hey, I love you guys. We'll go out after the practice and games. But when we get here, we got to go to work. Like we have to get going and time is critical. Like and we have to we have to have a plan today, you know, and so. We would execute our plan every day. And um, if you just think about like every year we would go into the season as if we had never met any of the players, even though we had a bunch of returners with like, okay, every season in the spring and the fall, we'd start over like, okay, here's how we bunt. Here's how we feel the ground ball. Here's how we hit and run. Here's how these are the rules. And you can speed it up as you got more and more returners. But, you know, my college coach was really good about that. Like if you haven't gone over it in practice, it's not their fault. Like if, if they haven't been told how to, or explained or shown or experienced how to do it. And so you just write down all the things that you have to do in a season and you put them, you start putting them into the, this structured practice and, and every 15 minutes you're doing something new and you're allowing them to just be athletes and explore things. And I think that if I could do anything different, I would include a lot of, a lot more generalized athleticism activities like, running and cutting and pivoting and twisting with unstable loads and responding to playing games of tag and things like that, you know, um, and not, and not so much, let's take a hundred ground balls today. And let's take, you know, I would, I would do that. Like even a 15 minute segment, seven or eight of it would be just running around, you know, being an athlete. And then the last seven or eight would be, all right, let's do the skill, you know, um, and try to infuse athleticism in everything we do.
That's yeah. That's I, I try great. to think about it. Hopefully, I can stay on this time. I don't know what the heck is going on, but just thinking about like as an adult, right? Without having a specialty in baseball or movement or anything, just like think about the movement that you're trying to see, and then how could you? How could that movement express itself in a different way? You know, so like if I have a kid that isn't very good at throwing in general, um, when he gets on right. the mound, I might have him go do a backhand like a shortstop and see if that presents a completely different athlete, you know. And so that's where some of the problem solving comes in is you have to assume that your guesses are right. And that was something that I right. had struggled with as a young coach is like, what do I know? I don't know anything. And, you know, I don't want to make him guess wrong and then hurt him. It's like, and these kids are pretty resilient. You know, you have to be smart, yeah. but like typically kids are going to be able to handle some goofy things and might, might like that you're asking them to throw a submarine, you know, and, and have with you ever, that, just have you ever, have you ever watched like uh, the game is over and have you ever seen the wall ball stuff that goes on over by the oh, concession yeah. stand? Yeah. Oh my gosh. They, they look, we're not worried about little Johnny's arm. He's fine. He's fine. Look at him. He's over there. You're right. Throwing tennis balls. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> No, or or even just like I, I was thinking about it earlier when I asked, you know, I talked about the player that I was trying to change his arm. You know, can you do those different things? How many people don't want to see their kid ever throw the ball sidearm because they're worried that they're going to hurt their arm? You know, and it's just like being informed and watch watch what happens on TV. They have to throw from all different slots and and it's fun to do it. So and if you don't, anyway. you're putting it at more risk. If you don't expose them to it, they're going to be at more risk. You have to expose them to it they have to rehearse it they have to have done it before so that and it just it, I physiologically just feel like it, and neurologically yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah and it Go just it, i'm not saying it's magic right but if you know how to throw from 12 30 all the way down to 5 30 on the clock like your i tend to see players they, they tend to start moving better because they have to right in order to throw yeah. the ball straight with all of those different angles your body has to start picking the best ways to do it um so anyway i know that you we, have something had a, coming up at well, noon so i just want to make sure that we we're yeah. 70 minutes in so we're all on you randy okay so regarding that last thing because i'm having fun talking to you guys and yeah. I, I do have to go here because i got i got someone coming in but um the, we we i used to group my guys in groups of four based on ability level. And, and then we put them in a diamond in the outfield and they would all be in, spread out in these diamonds and they would have different throws they would make. They'd run right and throw left. They'd run left and throw right. They'd do a backhand. They'd do a jeter throw. They And so we let them explore it, it, after they're warmed up, just doing variable throwing drills, you know, in a diamond, this guy's throwing to that guy, this guy's throwing to that guy. And then you could switch it up and say, all right, now you have to throw that guy. Now you have to throw that guy. And they're throwing off the wrong foot. They're throwing against their body. And there's so many creative things you can do just by putting them in this big diamond based on ability level and let them just do all kinds of throws, you know, all kinds of different throws and, and letting them explore by kind of guiding them toward that. So you're spot on about wh what if we created a whole generation of pitchers that could stand on the mound and throw it any way they want? Right. What's a bad throw? Yeah. Like, what if you had a pitcher on the mound and you didn't know how he's going to throw it? Like, uh, I don't know what he's going to do. He's like yeah, here right. and then he's here and he's here. That's, that's little David Cohn, you know, from yeah. the day. He'd have three different arm <laughs> spots. It's, it's, we can't do it. Like, all I did was, I mean, that's a whole different conversation because, I mean, yeah. I'm sure John has a story about changing his arm slot. I was told that I could or could not do things. In high school, I was lucky enough to go to a school in the middle of nowhere where I would throw, I would throw, I would throw like a whole inning sidearm. Just like, whatever, I'm going to throw a sidearm this time. 
or I'd be like, okay, this is a knuckleball game. What? Like you're a fastball <laughs> curveball guy. Like I'm just going to like the fact that I got to do that was just really unique. Um, so yeah. yeah, really cool. Well, Randy, this, this has been, fun, yeah, I was just going to say, this has been oh, great. No, uh, why don't you let everybody know um, <clears throat> what time, uh, I'm sorry, what time he got me right there. Why don't you let everybody know uh, how to follow you, you know, for people that aren't, you know, we'll just sum it up and where you're at if they have any questions from there. Yeah. Okay. So floridabaseballranch.com and at Florida baseball, FL baseball ranch on Twitter and Instagram. Um, we have a really cool 800 number. It's eight, six, six strike three. You can call us anytime and we'll talk to you in person. We answer the phone all hours of the day. We don't really have any hours. We just pick up the phone and answer it. If we don't, we'll call you right back. And then the two big things we have going on right now, we have our coaches, our savage certification, our seven pitching coaches certification course. Um, a lot, we got, we got even big league guys that are attending that it's going to be uh, two days, May 8th and 9th. We go from two to six on Friday, May 8th. And we go from, from 10 AM to 6 PM. These are all Eastern times on May 9th. And it's, it's two day course. And we close our registration for that on Wednesday at noon. Um, and so if you want to get into that Florida baseball ranch.com slash coach, I just sent the, the workbooks out to all the people that are registered. The workbook is 103 pages. It's 305 slides. And it is everything that we do. And there's like, there's probably a hundred, there's probably 200 videos in those slides of, of things that we'll post for people to have access to. And um, so that's going to be uh, Friday and Saturday. And then we also have our remote training going on. If guys can't get here because of the situation we're in, you know, keeping everybody safe and healthy, we developed this really robust remote training program. Uh, our guys check in every single day and they fill out a, a Google sheet that, that gives us a questionnaire. And then we, they text our instructors or call us on a daily basis and we we re we give them a new look on video every week and uh and so that's floridabaseballranch.com slash remote if they want to get involved in that and check us out there so and you have a lot of educational pieces on that on your website too as well i do if you go into the little books and uh it's the educational books section um up it's like up in the little menu at the top and it takes you to the page that has all the books i think I've, i don't know i've written seven six or seven books something like that I'm working on one. I'm 40,000 words into another one. I don't know what to call it, but it's, it keeps evolving. Awesome. So, yeah. Can't wait. Can't wait. Yeah. Awesome. All right, Randy. Well, make sure John, John doesn't know that I can't hear him. So if he, I'm, I'm going to just stop talking. So thanks, Randy. All right. Thanks. Guys. <laughs> it's, fine. it's all good. Uh, I do know it. it's all good. So anyway, guys, go check out Randy, Florida baseball ranch. Amazing, amazing um, business in Florida, as well as resource online. Um, if anybody has any questions, Randy, I really appreciate you come on and, and sacrifice a little time in your day. It's been great. You've been, you've been an unbelievable help to me, whether you knew it or not. And, and my, growth to this whole thing. And like I said, I've followed you for a long time and, and we were able to meet at the uh, conference this year in Nashville, which was amazing. So, well, and I got one more, just go Argos. That's what I got to say. <laughs> yeah. Go Argos. Exactly. <laughs> that's a funny, that's a fun joke. Yeah. You can you uh, add me to the list for, on that one, Randy. So, okay. We're good. We're good. All yeah, right. for sure. All right, guys. Thanks again. Uh, don't forget to rate review and subscribe and mash that like button. It really helps us. All right. All right, bud. Thanks a lot. See you. Thanks, and Randy.